0: Welcome to Pep Talks, People Empowering People. These uplifting interviews allow everyday people to share their not-so-everyday stories of resiliency to help you get through your story. This is your host, Casey Crawford Kellum. I'm a widow who has certainly faced my share of adversity, but I continue to keep on dancing. I'm a school counselor, author, yoga instructor, motivational speaker, and former business owner and special ed teacher, and now Podcaster. My journey is about helping you to get through your journey. Tony Viola, a former real estate broker, was indicted three times and tried twice on identical charges by a multi-jurisdictional mortgage fraud task force. Prosecutors alleged Tony duped banks like J.P. Morgan into making no money down mortgage loans that the bank didn't permit. Tony was convicted in federal court and sentenced to 12 and a half years in jail. But from jail and without an attorney, he proved his innocence at a second trial on the same charges using evidence the Justice Department hid before the first trial. Prosecutors possessed evidence proving Tony's innocence all along, but never provided it to the defense. In 2019, the Justice Department admitted lying about evidence in Tony's case, and in July 2020, the FBI also admitted making materially false statements about this same evidence. Tony was released from prison this summer after spending eight and a half years in prison under false accusations and due to much corruption and fraud within the Department of Justice. The first of this kind of interview, welcome, Tony Viola.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's so nice to be on your show. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, I appreciate you wanting to share your story because this seems like quite a story. And my heart just breaks that you have lost eight and a half years of your life under false accusations. I'm so sorry for this. And how are you holding up right now?
1: Well, I'm very grateful because I'm not in jail. And while I was in jail for eight and a half years, these legal proceedings went on for almost four years before that. So this has been almost a 15-year ordeal with the, with the government saying that I tricked banks into making no money down loans, which was just never true. And, um, you know, I started a real estate company in the basement of my house with two credit cards with my high school sweetheart. And we built this big company, this big real estate company based in downtown Cleveland. And to watch the government destroy everything I worked for my whole life, it's just been incredibly difficult. And, you know, when there's a criminal case against you, it says United States of America versus Tony Viola. And that's really what it is. It's the power of the country to crush the individual. And it's an unbelievable odyssey and an experience that uh, that befalls many of us. And I'm hoping that by sharing our story that uh, we have change in our country, that we drive change inside these prosecutors' offices and inside the police departments where doing the right thing doesn't seem to be something uh, that's ever considered by these folks.
0: Wow. And, And right now, any listener can probably relate on a much smaller level to just being unfairly accused of anything in your life. And I know I can just dealing with my HOA and it's so minute. But the emotions that I had and still have, even thinking about it, are are really awful emotions you don't want to live with. You know, how are you getting through this false accusations and all this time that you put through?
1: Well, it's no small trick. And I was in jail and you get very isolated. And when you fight the government, it's called diesel therapy, where I was constantly being shipped to different jails. I was in jail in Chicago and Ashland, Kentucky, and Youngstown, Ohio, and Pittsburgh, and in several jails throughout Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania. So I was constantly being shipped to to disrupt my legal work. And I'm not going to lie; I mean, it was just an awful experience. I wouldn't uh, wish on anybody. Having said that, you still, I still found positive things. That even though this was an awful experience, I was learning about our legal system. I was on the jail law computer. I made really good friends. My friend Paul figured out how to cook in jail using an iron. He would make pizza and toast bagels. And so I I was allowed to go to church. I'm Catholic. I I was able to uh, maintain my faith. And so there was always things to be thankful for, no matter how bad things seemed. But it was very isolating and it was very challenging. And you're just severed from your family and friends. You don't know if everyone's okay. You don't know how people are doing. The jails didn't like when inmates got letters. A lot of times they would mail the letters back and say, oh, you can't send an envelope with, that's not a white envelope, or you can't use a blue pen. And so it was very difficult to be isolated from people, but I made the best of it as best as I could. And I did make some really good friends. And I learned how the court system and the justice system actually work. And I learned how to take apart a criminal case that um, not just for me, but for other guys that were wrongfully accused as well
0: wow and I, I love that attitude that you are already starting the interview with finding some great things that came from such awfulness and such unfairness and I, and that's amazing i mean your life has been turned upside down now for like 12 and a half years right right and so like how did this even come to be like what was did somebody come banging on your door 12 and a half years ago like how did this even play out in the beginning
1: well, the government banged on our door and had a nationally televised raid. I mean, we had breaking news live. It was called the nation's largest mortgage fraud case. And local prosecutors in Cleveland, a guy named Dan Caceres and a federal prosecutor, Mark Bennett, they uh, raided our company. They took all the computers away. We were downtown in the Superior Building. I mean, it came with guns and broke the door down and broadcasted live. And they said that I stole $46 million. It was the nation's largest mortgage fraud case. Now we're not a mortgage company. I built a real estate business with my colleagues and friends. And so we were doing real estate auctions and property management. So when I was accused of tricking banks into making no money down mortgage loans, and there's all these FBI agents and police officers with guns in our office looking for mortgage files, it was almost something like out of a Three Stooges episode. And so I went down and and addressed the media and said, this is the biggest bunch of nonsense ever. We don't have any mortgage files. We're not a mortgage company. And I didn't trick any banks into making any no money down loans. And by the way, I don't have $46 million either. But the prosecutors loved it. This was during the financial crisis, during the bank bailout. They loved having press conferences in front of our building, making YouTube videos, raiding our offices. I was indicted three different times in federal court once and in state court twice. I was prosecuted by a a joint task force. And so I just said, I'm not pleading guilty to something I didn't do. Most people said, Tony, you can't win. Uh, You should just plead guilty and forget it because once you're ensnared, you can't get out. And I said, I'm sorry. We started our company with, to create jobs in Cleveland. I don't think I did anything wrong. I'm not standing in front of a judge and pleading guilty. I'm not criticizing people who did because I get it. They were bullied and coerced. But I said, I am not pleading guilty. And they might destroy our company and everything I work for, but I'm not going to make it easy for these prosecutors. I'm sorry. This is ridiculous that they're looking for mortgage files at a real estate company. Incidentally, they refused to meet with me. I wanted to bring our records to the prosecutor's office and show them what companies I actually own. But they start with a conclusion and work backwards. There's not an actual investigation. They just said, Hey, this Tony guy's guilty. So they basically were just looking for confirmation of what they thought. They didn't want to hear any evidence that didn't comport with what they thought, which was, I was a crook. If your house went down in value, it was my fault. If there's foreclosures in Cleveland, it's this Tony guy right here. So it was a media circus, and it was devastating to watch our company being destroyed. And over the next couple of years, it basically disintegrated um, from over 100 employees and seven offices into basically uh, nothing.
0: Oh, my gosh. How awful. Here you are building up uh, an opportunity for so many people to have jobs and to build up the real estate industry, only to have everything come crashing down on you with all these false accusations of something you had nothing to do with. Now. I I don't even get how they can come after you in the first place. Uh, Were they just trying to cover up the real bad guys? I mean, do you know who really was doing this? Well, the the
1: government, no one in the government wanted to be honest with the public and just say, look, we're not going to prosecute banks because your ATM card has to work and small businesses need loans and uh, we're not going to, they just didn't want to be honest And just tell the people that even though these bankers did a lot of bad things, it'll make it worse if we prosecute them. So they were looking for real estate companies and mortgage people to prosecute. And each of these uh, uh, cities throughout the country had a mortgage fraud task force and they went after people. So the government said that the bank was an innocent victim. Okay, so JP Morgan and Citibank, these are innocent victims, which means everybody in a real estate transaction becomes a criminal. You could go after the title company, the mortgage guy, the buyer, the seller. And they did. They indicted hundreds of people in greater Cleveland. And as I said earlier, most people just pled guilty and didn't want to fight. But there was, uh, people were mad because the economy was terrible. And we have mass incarceration in in our country. There's a lot of FBI agents looking for things to do. And there was federal grant money that came down to the local offices. And these prosecutors loved our case. They interviewed my marketing director 10 times. I mean, they just kept hauling us down. There's different members of the task force. Some people went to the county prosecutors. Some went to the FBI. Some went to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Sometimes the prosecutors came and met them at a Starbucks. And so there was all these detectives. And we were just, once you're ensnared, you just can't get out. And so they enjoyed the, the media adulation. I mean, until the second trial, which I won. But in the beginning, the government really enjoyed destroying our our business, and they enjoyed press conferences and media coverage, and a lot of the media just printed what they said, and I couldn't get in a word edgewise. So it was a very difficult time.
0: That had to feel just awful. I mean, anybody, I'm sure any listener can relate to just that false accusation, and then to not have a voice, to not be able to speak up for the truth, and not to be listened to. That's just horrendous. And it's and you're talking about Bigwigs. I mean, this is a power fight. This is a a big cover up for some huge, huge wrongness that took place in this nation, covering up banks and ve- blaming realtors, real estate companies, mortgage companies, what have you. I mean, what what an awful mess! And wanting to come and point fingers to you, you know, I I am so sorry. And so so for four and a half years, you were fighting this.
1: Right. I mean, one thing that happened was the government's indictments were wrong. It said that I owned family title and transcontinental lending, and I didn't. Our company was called Realty Corporation of America. So it was just infuriating to listen to this rubbish when I didn't own these companies and I never got any money. So if there's something wrong, why are you coming after me? Well, it turns out that one of the government witnesses, uh, government informants named Catherine Clover, she mixed me up with another guy named Tony. There was a different Tony who owned this family title services. And it wasn't me. And so the government was very, I was shocked that the U S attorney and the FBI were so sloppy that they really didn't actually know what companies I own. And then as the case was moving forward, um, the government had one of its employees, um, pretending to help me. Okay. And so what happened was that's a whole nother story really, but they were doing a lot of underhanded things. They got wind that our trial strategy was going to be to have an accountant to go through the computers from these companies that I don't own. And our defense was going to be like, well, I didn't get any money. I didn't have anything to do with it. I don't have $46 million. So why are you coming after me? And then before the first trial, the government claims that they lost computers that they had seized. They went on a raids and raided 10 companies. And so the companies I don't own the computers that show that I didn't have anything to do with any wrongdoing. If there was any poof, disappeared. So this is what was going on. Just unbelievable. Let me tell you, when prosecutors go on TV and say something, you can forget it. They will never, ever admit that they're wrong. And they will do anything. And I mean anything to win their case. And all the other people in the office just stand by and watch the shenanigans going on. And nobody does anything.
0: How awful. What an awful use of power. And just, it's just embarrassing. It's embarrassing that our country is is run like this. I mean, it really is. And by the way,
1: this is not just a Tony, oh, poor Tony. The evidence that I used at my second trial exonerates all of the people, I believe, that were indicted by this task force. So it's not like a DNA case where, oh, I didn't uh, rape the girl or something. This this evidence that shows that I used at my second trial proved that the banks knew the loans were no money down. They authorized them to be no money down. They closed them no money down. In writing, there was no scam. There was no trickery. We sold them that way. They have said it was okay. And so these documents prove that the government's theory that these banks were tricked is rubbish. And so I hope that I, I, I got released from jail, but I haven't finally won my case. We're trying to get all of these cases thrown out because this is ridiculous that all of these people have felonies. They lost their jobs. They paid all this money to attorneys. They had their reputations destroyed for nothing.
0: How many people would you say have been indicted or are behind bars right now for this false accusation?
1: there still are people in custody that were prosecuted by this task force. Uh, and it looks like about a thousand people were became defendants in these cases. So they indicted a thousand people in greater Cleveland. Oh God! Um, that's just in Cleveland.
0: Oh. That's just in Cleveland.
1: All over the country. This went on.
0: Oh my gosh. How awful. These people are, you're, you're losing like a, you lost a fourth of your life or something right, right. there, you know, to, right. to be in jail and bounced around and, you know, you know, family, friends, and people left behind. So now, here you're, you're, you're released this summer. And what was that like? Like, how long did you know that you were going to be released? And what did that feel like?
1: Well, it's a miracle. I mean, first of all, whenever I would be paged, they would say Anthony Viola to the front office or to the warden's office. I never knew what that was. Sometimes it was word that my best friend. Committed suicide. Sometimes it was that my father passed away. Um, one time, or many times, it was pack your stuff, you're going to another jail. Where am I going, sir? You'll find out where you get there. Get out of my office and pack your stuff. Sometimes it was harmless. Can you teach the uh, history class tonight, uh, you know, or whatever? So, so I hated to be paged to the front office because I never knew what was happening. Oh, the so anxiety I had to
0: be. Yeah, you awful. never know what,
1: and I used to say, why don't these people just leave me alone? And, and, and so, uh, it was hard to have peace of mind. Every time the pager would go off in the jail, I'd be like, oh, I hope they don't say my name. And then they would say my name. So I didn't know they paged me and I went, and I said, yes, sir. Did you page me? He says, pack your stuff. You're, you've got four hours to pack your stuff. I said, I do. What's what's happening. You're being released. And I, the, the lady in his, um, the other officer said, you look like you're going to faint. I said, I've been in jail for almost a decade. Are you sure I'm being released? Are you absolutely sure? Because I don't want to tell my uh, family and friends. Because remember, I won the second trial years before and there was all this subsequent legal wrangling. So I didn't know if I would be released or not. It was a miracle. And I called my friend Melanie and she's like, oh my gosh, I'll take care of it. And so my other friend Don drove there and, and picked me up and I had all my boxes of legal work and I just, I couldn't believe it. And he was like, "Do you want Burger King? Do you want a..." St-? I couldn't even eat. I couldn't even think. I said, "I can't even imagine." And I'm so lucky. I have such nice friends. My friend Jonathan Rich said, "Oh, I've got an empty unit in the apartment I own. Just take that." Um, I went to write him a check because I've been here a couple of months. He'd sent it back. All my friends brought f- furniture over. Um, it's sort of um, the joke that Martha Stewart would have a fit because I've got all this mismatched. Furnishings, but everybody just started bringing chairs and microwaves and toaster ovens and a coffee pot. And oh, Tony, I have a table you could use, and I have, you know, a mattress. I mean, it's just amazing. And so it's so nice to um, be fortunate to have wonderful friends and family that hung in with me all this time. And I hadn't seen my brother in over a decade, and he flew in from Denver, and my mom. And so uh, my cousins, I'm just very grateful. A lot of the people that I work with in our company, it was so nice to see people. One of the awful things is I didn't know how people were doing. And I was worried about my colleagues and friends. And and they would say I'd get a card or something. And they, you know, that's just not the same as being available to know, hey, are you okay? Do you need anything? How's everything going? And so I really cherish the time I've had in the last couple months to catch up with everyone.
0: Wow. You are blessed now to be surrounded with so many wonderful people that have Taking you under your their wing to get you set up and right. back acclimated into this world that right. has changed considerably. Sure, it has. I'm sure your old, even your neighborhood, your old neighborhood looks different, and things are up, things are down, and with the pandemic, all these places are right. closed down. And wow, this, I mean, it had to be a huge emotional uh, experience for you to come out of jail and see the sunshine and and see people in person.
1: I, I couldn't believe it. Even the first week or two that I wasn't in jail, I, I'm i so used to. I mean, at four o'clock, they would count us. I was so used to like standing at four o'clock. Like I would be looking at my watch and I'd say, wait a minute, there's no count. And so it, it's a it's a crazy adjustment um, to, uh, you know, like I have so many friends that are women, but in jail, I mean, maybe maybe there's a couple of female officers, but it, I was just around men for, for 10 years. It was just I mean just little things we're just and the other thing is the country's so divided I mean you know back in the day Facebook was for posting pictures of your kids or you know you baked a cake or something but there's a lot of divisiveness in our country too and and that's sort of heartbreaking to see but but listen I'm grateful and so I figured out how to use the phone I did make mistakes I hung up on my friends I hadn't talked to and I put it in airport mode or something, uh, and so I couldn't use it except to do Sudoku, or, which I don't <laughs> want to do Sudoku because I've done Sudoku for a decade in jail. I don't want to, and so I, I've, you know, I've made technological um, yeah. errors, but it's all good to be uh, just being reconnected with everybody. Now, I haven't won my case yet. I was released because of false statements about evidence, but I'm still actually in court fighting to actually get the entire conviction thrown out, which I think we're going to do, but it's still a slog.
0: Gosh, I can't imagine like, so what actually got you through? I mean, every day you're waking up like Groundhog's Day, you're in the cell, you're in this very simple, awful environment. How did you get yourself through each day and each night?
1: Well, first of all, I had purpose because I was fighting my case. So when we weren't locked down, which was often, I would go to the jail library and work on my case and I would file lawsuits and I would do litigation and I would do records requests. I had a really good investigator, still do, Bob Frederick, really great guy, former FBI agent, never stopped believing in me. Um, I won the second trial because a lady inside the prosecutor's office became a whistleblower. Her name was Dawn Pasella. Her family is helping me. So that's very humbling to have their help. So I was like, you know what? I've got to try to fight as best I can. Even though you only have typewriters, no computers, and even though it's almost impossible, it's actually not impossible. So I became the law man in the jail. I'd be in the library. I'd learn to help other guys with their cases. I learned from their cases. Other guys helped me. And so I was just always in the law library and gave me purpose. Also, I'm Catholic, and so... A lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times a priest was able to come in and say mass. And so it would just fill me up with energy and and faith and perseverance for the next week. And I would just think, well, if I can get to the next um, church service. And also church was a good community in the jail because I met a lot of guys that I became really good friends with who were going through something similar. And one thing in jail is there are other men that truly can understand and my friends would say, we were sorry for what you're dealing with and we understand, but it's, it's a lot different for the guys that are actually in there. So there were doctors, there was attorneys, all kinds of folks in there that people just had addictions or made mistakes that had ridiculous jail sentences. But we became friends and we there was a lot of camaraderie within the prison.
0: You had empathy. We can all have right. compassion towards you and what you went through, but none of us will understand what you fully went through except for those people right. that were there with you and can right. empathize with your hurt and pain and right that false accusation. And for 12 years of yours to be turned upside down and eight and a half of it for you to be just ripped away from your family and friends right. and you have to live this very quiet, singular lifestyle for all that time. I mean, my gosh, I mean, they, they took away a decade of your life. So how, how do you, I know you're still going through it, but like, how do you live without anger?
1: Well, I'm going to be honest with you. It's challenging because there were times where I saw the officers in the jail. Some were nice to me, okay? But there was a lot of officers in the jail that enjoyed cruelty. They would throw my legal work away. They would throw pictures away that people sent me. Um, And it was infuriating. You know, there was an older guy named Phil, and he had some mental illness challenges. And so, he would, he would say stupid things. The officer once said, I don't want to hear peep out of anybody. And he said he would jump up and say peep. So he shouldn't have done that. But they beat the heck out of this guy. They handcuffed him, leg chained him, and threw him down a flight of stairs and then dragged him up the stairs and threw him down the stairs. And I would watch these officers beat the heck out of inmates. And it was awful. And we would see needless cruelty. They would want to cancel the visitation because let's say they found contraband cell phones, which we're not allowed to have in jail, right? A lot of them, the officers bring in, by the way, so they would, they would say, well, we're going to cancel it. And they would wait till like seven o'clock on Saturday morning, an hour before the visit start, and they would make an announcement. But all the families, some people had flew in from out of town or were driving. They loved turning away. They did it to me. They, they loved turning away people at the visiting room door. Oh, I'm sorry, visitation is canceled. I mean, there was such needless cruelty at these prisons. And then you would just see the general heartbreak waiting to make a phone call and hearing a guy try to explain to his child, daddy won't be home this Christmas, but next Christmas or in three Christmases. Um, I'd have visits from my family and friends, which, which was nice, but it was bittersweet because then they would leave and I was stuck uh, in there. And then the kids would just have meltdowns. They didn't understand. There was a four-year-old kid that, young boy. And he was saying, daddy, daddy, please come home with us. I want to, I want you to, I want to color pictures for you. I want you to come home with mommy and me, tell the policeman you want to come home. He did, the kid didn't understand why daddy was in jail. I mean, we are, and by the way, by the way, you pay for all this. If you pay taxes, you pay for this rubbish. And so the country is destroying itself. It's destroying families. It's destroying communities. And so one of the reasons to eliminate this mass incarceration and this over- is I think this is an awful place for these officers to work. In the jail, it destroys their soul. That's not a normal thing to be beating somebody up who's handcuffed and throwing people downstairs. It's awful what happened. I saw inmates die because they didn't get the right medicine because the jail was trying to save money. I mean, it, it, it's an awful place to be. It's toxic. So it's a challenge. You know, on your website, you, you have a blog post about self-compassion. I think you just got to say, hey, you know what? I'm going through an awful experience, but I'm doing the best I can. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to fight my case. I'm going on the law computer. I'm sending things into courts. I'm working with my investigator. I, I, I'm I'm trying to be spiritual and, and, and I'm trying to be grateful when there are things to be grateful for. We get to go outside sometimes. It'd be a nice day. I could walk. I'd be grateful. I had a little radio. I could listen to the Indians game sometimes. Um, so there's always something to be grateful for, but part of it is just recognizing it's unfair, but other people have gone through worse and we just gotta hang in and take it a day at a time. The other thing too is for me, when I was working on my court case, I just couldn't do it all the time. There were times where I said, I just need a break and that's okay. Even though I wanted to fight and get out, there were times where I said, you know what, this week maybe I just better leave it alone and just relax or you know, read or whatever, do something else. So you got to take care of yourself and look out for yourself. Fighting the government is a long process. It's not a sprint, but a marathon. It's tough.
0: Oh, wow. And, and, you know, I hope, you know, I'm obviously somebody who loves to make opportunities out of obstacles. And boy, do I see a book or a motivational speaker or something coming from Tony Viola. I mean, what okay. do you see for Tony's future? What, you know, let's assume we're going to win this and, and have it behind you. What, what are your plans now?
1: Well, it's really hard for me to think about going back into business or doing anything productive if I personally am vindicated and this continues in our country. I don't want this to happen to anyone else. And so a Catholic priest once told me that God takes bad things and turns them into good things. And so what do I want? I want an investigation into these prosecutors. They didn't feel like following the law. I mean, if they have proof that I was innocent, they should have, they had to, under the law, produce that before trial. They didn't feel like it because they went on TV. This is not acceptable, okay? And so what we need to do is where there is injustice, it has to stop. Because as the famous saying of Martin Luther King, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I don't want this to happen ever to any other person. But it does happen to people. And it's continuing to happen. So the first thing we need to do is make history. We need to take these prosecutors, in my case, that have broken the law and destroyed computers and hid evidence and it created this nonsense with this lady, Dawn Casella, who was an undercover operative after I was indicted to, to figure out what our trial strategy was. All the illegal things these prosecutors did need to be exposed and they should be prosecuted. Because if there's no accountability in, in law enforcement, this will continue. And to change the culture, we have to take these prosecutors that break the law and prosecute them, take their pensions. Take their jobs because there are honest people in law enforcement. There are good people in law enforcement. And that has to be our country where we have the best. And when there's problems or injustice, we're not sweeping it under the rugs. But there is a lot of camaraderie. And these prosecutors all cover for each other. These police officers, it's outrageous. You know, the George Floyd, I mean, as bad as it was, the officer that had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck, the other three or two officers were just standing there. Nobody could say, hey, man, get off this guy. And that's what's happened not as bad as Mr. Floyd, but in my case, all these other prosecutors and FBI and detectives, they know there's misconduct, but it's not the culture of those offices to say, hey, stop. I'm not going to do this. We're not, we're going to try to win the case fair and square, but if we don't win, it's okay. That's not what they think. I'm guilty because they say so, and they think they're righteous and I'm a bad dude. So whatever tactics they use to win is okay. That has to stop.
0: Yeah. Power, power can be really ugly, can't it? Wow, your story is so profound. And I hope that you are able to share this in so many platforms so that people can understand what's going on out there and that others that are wrongly incarcerated can be freed and be able to share their story too. I'm so glad that you are out and hope that you continue to stay out and that you win this and it's dismissed and you can get on to Tony Viola Part Two Life. And I hope to see you doing good stuff with what happened to you. You seem like such a positive and amazing man that just is so grateful. And I just love your positivity. I mean, there's a lot to be angry about, a lot to be heard about. And you have taken this and and you're making good out of it. And I really appreciate that because what was done to you was wrong. And so I I really am grateful for you to share your story. And I thank you for your time. And we're going to follow you, Tony Viola. going to follow your story hopefully there'll be good news and we'll be watching you on the news freed as an innocent man from all this heartbreak and awful unfairness that was done to you
1: Well, thank you very much. And there is a website about my case, freetonyviola.com that my friends put together while I was in jail and we do update people. And we also ask folks to share their own experiences and their own thoughts to have a wide conversation because it's not just about what happened to me. It's about making sure this doesn't happen again. So I appreciate it. And your website's great. There's a lot of good tools on there for folks that have experienced trauma or reversals. Life isn't a bowl of cherries. Things happen that you don't expect. And so the question is, how do you bounce back? How do you, overcome it and, and look forward to better days ahead. But I'm very, really appreciative of your time today and letting me share the story with your audience. Thank you. Well,
0: thank you. Keep me posted on how you're doing with all this and I'll look for you in the news for some good stuff happening to Tony Viola.
1: <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thank
0: you. We learned from Tony that there is always something to be grateful for. Church is a good community, which can offer you energy, faith, and perseverance. Having purpose can help you get through trying times. We have to channel outrage for the good. Having just one person believe in you is very empowering. And finally, you have to take care of yourself and look out for yourself. Today's gratitude is, I hate the unfairness of injustice. Anybody who thinks they are better than others or chosen or feel they have an entitlement, be it through monarchy, government, or money. I think we are all born the same. We are entitled to an equal shot at life by Liam Cunningham. Well, that's it for today's interview. We hope our guest's story helps you get through your story. Don't stop believing and keep on dancing.